Thor was recommended to me by a colleague, and what a great recommendation. Working with Thor made for a very enjoyable experience. His coaching style is relaxed and collaborative. We established a partnership and freely exchanged ideas. I quickly came to trust his judgment, which allowed me to put more of my personality into the role. With his help, I was able to meet my goal of delivering a slightly above average performance and not get fired for any of the jokes. That was one of his jokes. It was a well above average performance. But more importantly, I was able to enjoy the experience and feel in control and confident throughout. Thank you, Thor. And that was Colin, head of product at Power now. And it was a digital summit. He was emceeing. It's a four-hour event with speakers covering a range of topics, and he'd never been an MC before. And given the audience numbers got close to a 1,000, it's fair to say he was nervous. To see Colin's recommendation and 80 or, 80 or so more recommendations for my client work, head to LinkedIn. Connect with me there if we're not already connected. Good morning, Thor. How are you? Or good evening, Thor. How are you? I'll take you a good morning, sir. What day is it for you? Is this Wednesday? It's Wednesday. I, I have to tell you, I got up yesterday morning thinking it was yesterday as well. These time zones can, can do your head in. They are confusing. My apologies. I wonder if I screwed up. Did I? No, no, no. It was absolutely on my part. It was me, me trying to be clever and uh, schedule my car service in and do things like that. <laughs> Well, it's good to talk to you. Thanks for making the effort. What time in the morning is it for you? Uh, 7 a.m. 7 a.m., but I've got my second coffee in my hands and it'll cut in in about five minutes, so I'll be yeah, alive. You'll be flying. Well, I'll kick off with an easy one, maybe. Um, like in my work, I run into people often who they feel that it's too late to give something new a go in their 50s. And... I think I think differently personally. I just turned fifty this year, but you, as far as from my research, you really kicked off a writing career in your fifties. Is that true? Absolutely. And let, let me say to you that with a fair following breeze, which means health fundamentally, yeah. this is the best decade of your life coming up. Yeah. Um, it should be. It certainly was of mine. Although I'm, I'm working on the current decade, I'm in my sixties now. Yeah. But yeah, you're quite right. Um, I was 50 when I went back to school, um, back to uh, college to um, to study writing. And prior to that, I had virtually no experience in writing fiction. Pretty incredible. And what gave you the capability to go back to college? You, I believe you had a pretty successful business career. I mean, I mean, the capability that I guess there were two things. One is financial. Um, you know, in midlife, we had the dependent children. Um, you've got to have some financial security or you want to have some financial security. Um, and I had that, um, A, because I'd, I'd sold my business and I had some money in the bank from that. Yeah. Um, but also because, and this is perhaps more important, I had the expertise that meant that I didn't need to be pulling coffees at $10 an hour to be supporting myself. Um, I was able to run training courses at you know $3,000 a day back in you know, 20, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. So that was um, that that was helpful. So I had, the, I had the money coming in. The other thing was I had the unqualified support of my partner, and that was very important too. I mean, there, there, are, there are people whose partners would say to them, oh, you know, you, we, I quite like the, the lifestyle that we've got. I'd like you to keep on earning and, and earning yeah. more money and so forth. Um, she was very much like, whatever you want to do, um, we'll make sure we can do it. Yeah, 
we could make this like a marriage guidance interview where you <laughs> give tips on having a successful marriage by the sounds of it, Graham. <laughs> Look, I'll give you tips on having a successful marriage. I'll give you two words, joint projects. We could we could probably end the interview there. That would that would be tremendous value for a lot of people. Is your good uh, is your partner uh, is your wife a, a wife? Sorry, um, yeah, she, she's my wife. wife. I say partner because it's generic these days. Okay, is your is your partner a writer as well? Then yes, she is. Um, but but um, she's got a she's got a day job. She's a professor of psychiatry, so she's had an eminent psychiatrist. She's had a great career in psychiatry, but she's been writing since she was eight years old. And she got published before me. Um, she's got uh, a reasonably successful run of crime novels that she wrote, and we've written two novels together. Uh, three novels together now. The new one's coming out in March. What's the new one? The new one's called The Glass House. It, it, it draws on her expertise, so it's set in a mental health facility, and it's the first in a proposed series. So uh, we're very excited about that. We're about to do a huge Australian tour, biggest ever book tour over over four or five months. So uh, that's that's the way our year is shaping up. It's all around that book. How does how does a book tour work? What does that actually well, mean? Well, well, the short answer is they tend not to. They tend <laughs> not to work. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. there was a, there was a strange sort of dynamic where the um the the publisher would put you on book tour in a way because they felt that that was honoring the work that you'd done giving you yeah. giving you something you wanted and then you'd say back to them well look, i don't think we're going to sell many books is it really worth doing this and i say what you know you're not committed to this book and you yeah. have this, this silly and, and there's a desire i think to sit um to um look after bookshops and on amazon i'm um, just to, to sort of break that monopoly a little bit mm-hmm. um but in terms of actually selling books they've traditionally been you know, just terrible um we're, we're trying to break that by sort of reinventing the book tour Okay, well, I'm glad you said that. I didn't know that you were going to say that. So what does that mean, reinventing it? Because I absolutely hear you on the book tour. Like, I've never done a book tour, but I remember hearing Tim Ferriss, he of the four-hour work week, which is obviously a very successful book. And he he was on book tour to the UK, and he said his first place that he went, his first, I don't know, Waterstones, whatever it was, there were four people. And you think, four people? This is like one of the biggest kind of, I don't know, personal development book titles ever. Four people. So I've, I've yeah. twice had nobody, yeah. both times in the States. And on one of those occasions, my book was riding high on the New York Times bestseller list. Yeah. And the other one was a follow-up. So, And I certainly had three, four on multiple occasions. And if you get 300, which is a really good show-up yeah. book to it, then you might sell. You have a great night. You, you, sell, you sell 100 books on yeah. a night. And, and then someone, one of the big um, discount stores, puts an order for 3,000. Yeah. You know, it, it's you barely, you barely scratched the surface. You barely made a ripple in the in the water with it. Um, and you do so. You do it for all sorts of other reasons in terms of, of connecting with people. Look, our, our, my view would be, and when I'm talking about reinventing the book tour, that the publicity around the book tour is far more valuable than mm-hmm. than your actual appearance in terms of sales at the shop. Yeah. What you actually want is broader media coverage. Um, like here I am talking to you, and this podcast is going to get to a bunch of people. That'll be more people, I'm sure, than turn up to any of our our book tour events. So, so talking about it, doing some sort of interesting things, getting audience participation going, um, free drinks for mental health workers, you know, th- yeah. those sorts of things that, that that attract a little bit of attention and say, well, these guys are, are doing some fairly wild and interesting things. We're getting out to rural areas where they yeah. don't normally have, um, you know, the, the the conventional wisdom says, hey, wow, I got to do my event in New York City. Trouble with yeah. New York City is that there's a lot of other things on the same night as you. Yeah, yeah. Um, people can go see Hamilton. 
Whereas if you're in your upper Woolamakanka or whatever, um, some remote country town, you're the only deal in town. I remember going to see Bob Dylan in, in Pocatello, Idaho. Yeah. And, you know, you got 10% of the town turned out because what else were you going to do that night? Who's this Dylan guy? Might as well go see him. Take a look. That is such a good point. As a comedian, I interviewed Ollie. I interviewed Ollie Horn a few episodes ago on the show, and he was talking about doing this in Europe. So he, what he does is he's, he'll go and do a tour, and he'll specifically choose either suburbs of a big city, say Munich, yeah. when nobody really goes English language-wise, or he'll go to the kind of medium or small towns. And he says you can always get 100, 150 people in a theatre in Absolutely. these places because it's the only English language entertainment on. So it's exactly yeah. what you're saying. Whereas if he was to hit Munich Central, you know, there's tons of stuff people can go to. So, yeah, great idea. Are you touring in the UK or is it only Australia? In the at, European at UK? Stage, at this stage, four months in Australia is going to get it started. We don't even have a publisher in the UK at this stage. Um, we're in negotiations around that, so we'll see how that one goes. But, look, yeah, there's only so much time you can spend on the road, and it's actually yeah. very, as you would know, it's very draining. Yeah. Especially when you're getting behind the wheel of your you know, your four wheel drive and driving to the next town in Australia, the big place. Yeah, for sure. Now you're better off on the podcasts. You you can yeah. reach so many people, as you say. You've probably been asked this before, and apologies if it's a subject that's been done to death, but it fascinates me. Your characterization of people with now autism. I'd say I'd say to I'd say autistic people. Autistic people, so I'd use identity first language and that's you know, the rule these days um, for, for autism is that the community prefers, on the whole, autistic people, but you okay. ask. So autistic people. So how does – right, we take an example. Well, so I can remember being told that you couldn't, you shouldn't have someone play a part, and this was an Australian play, you shouldn't have someone play a part of Indigenous folk who weren't from that community. So I can see the rationale for that. But if you take that to the extreme and you say, I don't know, Stephen Hawking, some, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch was going to play Stephen Hawking, what are you going to do? Are you going to actually find an actor that has motor neuron disease? How are you going to make that work in terms of the flow of the story? Now, what what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, I'm just genuinely interested in how you write characters from the autistic community. Okay, so, so there's two there's two questions here. I mean, the, the good news for me is that I'm a, a novelist and screenwriter, not a casting director. So yeah. it's it's not on me. I have an yeah. I have an opinion on it, and I yeah. guess my opinion is sort of summarised by you know acting is acting, and you know, and whilst you know, I think there's all sorts of arguments for making sure that people in the community, um, in various communities, get opportunities. Yeah, um, you know, it's. Um, the capability, I don't think, is the, is the issue here. I think that there are people who are non-autistic. Who, look, I don't identify as autistic, and I've written a credible autistic character. You know, the, the, yeah. At least the autism community in general is very positive about that character. Um, and so the, the question really, as, as a writer, is an appropriation. Am, am I, as a person who doesn't identify as autistic, am I allowed to write an autistic character? I was actually in a debate at one stage, and on the other side of the debate was an Indigenous woman, um, uh, an Indigenous lesbian woman um, of quite strong, very strong opinions, and she said, you are not allowed to tell our stories. If you do it, you're stealing. And at the end of it, we went back and forth, of course, at the end of it, um, one of the presenters, uh, one of the convenient asked, they said, "Um, so, Graham, would you write, you know, how far would you go in terms of what you would write? 
And I said, I'd be prepared to write an Indigenous lesbian woman and write the book from her point of view. But I said, I would want to do it so well that Claire here stood up and said, this white fella gets it. Yeah. Um, so, so it's about authenticity, I think, for me anyway, and about people saying look, they, they haven't thrown a stereotype out there. They've done their best to understand. But yeah, at the end of the day, in order to be a writer, you have to be an empathizer. You have to be able to put yourself in someone else's shoes because even if you write from absolutely a character in fiction we're talking about, if you write a character who is absolutely you, isn't even a fictional character, and just write totally that, you still have to surround them by people. With, with people and if it's going to be fiction you're going to have to put have them do actions and that involves having some understanding of what's going on inside their head if you want to write decent fiction and not just um cardboard cut out characters so so writing like acting i think um involves empathizing with another's position and, and doing that well and part of that too is that hopefully you can take the reader on that journey with you um just because you're you're autistic doesn't mean you're a good writer and that you can take a, a person on the journey with it. We, at the time that I wrote the, the Rosie Project, there were not many novels out, and certainly not many good, successful novels, out by people who, who identified as autistic. That is changing, and in some ways I'm trying to clear the space a little bit and certainly try to amplify the voices of those people. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's an interesting one because, as you say, you, you could end up actually – with those stories not being told if you if you're going to wait around for someone who happens to have the perfect set of characteristics and background to tell the story from that point of view look the I mean, brutal choice choice problem is not about them being told it's about them being read a yeah. lot of books get published a very very large percentage sell less than 100 copies yeah. um and so it's one thing to say to give voice to somebody meaning that you put a, a cover on the book and you promote the book and so on but with yeah. the best intent um, if it doesn't land, it doesn't land. And there's there's some, um, I would like to say there's some craft and skill in, in, in writing a bestseller, but yeah. there's also a big heaping helping of luck. And, and I think the autistic community were very realistic about that with me. They might they might have said in their heads, well, we'd rather he was one of us. <laughs> but you know what? This yeah. book is selling in the millions, yeah. and he's about to write two more books in the series. Let's get on board and make sure that they're good books. And yeah. that they're authentic. And I was obviously trying to do that myself, but let's be, be helpful and supportive. And we'll get a couple of books out there that have an autistic hero. Um, in the best of all worlds, as I say, to be written by one of us, but autistic hero is good. It's a, it's a great point you make as well that so few books get sold. But I heard someone told me, I wish I could remember the exact statistic, but basically he was saying, even of the books that are sold, most, most don't get finished. Like people start them and don't even finish books, which I can hardly imagine because I'm a really enthusiastic reader. So once I start a book, I just have to go at the end because I have to know what's going to happen and I can't cheat and go at the end. But I understand I'm a rarity. So you are. I mean, I'm I'm a I'm a life's too short person. I say this book is is not doing it for me. I've made a mistake picking it up. I know what it is now. I can discuss what I didn't like about it. Move yeah. on. Now, but you can use those as sleep inducers. If you're traveling and you've got jet lag, <laughs> you can use the really bad ones to put yourself to sleep. Okay, a serious question then. Would you say there's any connection between your successful business career and your ability to create commercially effective books, books that are great stories that also sell? 
Okay, I'm going to give you a big answer to this question, and then I'm going to narrow back. Okay, so, so the, the short answer is yes, huge connection. The yeah. bigger answer um, is that I, I talk when, when, I, when I do public presentations and so forth to general audiences rather than you know like, like this rather than writers. Mm-hmm. My, my sort of hot topic is transportable skills. It's yeah. what did I learn in in business or in technology before that in business in research um, in in um, and consulting that I was able to take forward through yeah. all of those stages of my career and then and then into my writing career. And I bought a, a huge number of things into my writing career from my business career. I can just tick two or three off if that's if that's useful to you. Yeah, of course, yeah. The, the, the first is, and I think if I had to pick the most, okay, one was simple, simply subject matter. I mean, there are a lot of pe- young people particularly who can't write a boss sympathetically because they the, – the idea of a boss is Mr. Burns. Like, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Or, or the guy, or the guy who's, who's giving him a hard time at the restaurant where they're yeah. they're bussing tables or whatever. Um, I had a career in business. I worked with people who were in senior positions. I had an idea of what went on in their heads. I could write them realistically. Yeah. And in my autistic character, people say, "You know, wow, did you read up on autism?" And I said, "No, I worked for thirty years in information technology, so <laughs> I met lots of lots of autistic people, out yeah. and, and not out." So the subject matter first, but the the, the, the most important important thing I brought with me was a, what I would call meta expertise. So expertise about the nature of expertise, meaning in, in practice, I knew what it took to get good at something and, and what it took for me personally in terms of how I learn, how, what the mixture of practice versus theory that was going to work for me was. So I started off to learn something new, having realistic expectations that it was going to take some years, you know, the old 10,000 hours and that sort of thing, but very realistic expectations of how long it would take, how hard I would have to work, and particularly what the nature of that work was going to look like. So I, I was a very good student compared to the sort of student I was when I was studying physics back at back at uni and spending most of the time with the headphones on listening to music. Um, so so that was valuable. Um, look, I can give you a list. It just depends if you want to pursue this line. But if I was to pick one other thing, it was I, I studied design theory. I got a PhD in um, the, the nature of the design process, applied as it was to database design, but it was amazingly transferable to screenwriting. You know, screenwriting screenplays are sort of famously quite structured, and that was very natural for me to take on and to analyze and to apply a lot of my knowledge about structure and how you work in a structured environment. Mm-hmm. And I found that I could take quite a bit of that, not all of it, um, forward into novel writing. So I've got a book out called The Novel Project, which you can probably see sitting in the background, which is a, yeah. a how-to on writing. And it's very much based on that sort of project management structured thinking I got from business which is all about saying this is this is not telling you how to write a great sentence. This is telling you how to get your project done, how, how to say, okay, I'm starting today. I'm planning to finish my book in 12 months. Every day when I get up, I'll know what I'm about to do. I'll know how to do it. I'll get it done at the end of the day, which is so different from the way that the sort of romantic way that you sit down in front of a screen and, and wait for the drops of blood to form on your forehead yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so on, which is romantic but ineffective for most people. It's it actually, it's got a similarity for me to my profession, which is coaching. And that is, pe- people kind of get this idea, and I hear it with writers and creative people generally, that they're, lo- they're waiting for inspiration. Yeah. And, and it's like, well, why not treat it like, I don't know, let's say you were driving a truck 
you can't sit and wait for inspiration. You know, you have to be somewhere with the truck. If it's an Amazon delivery or whatever, you've got certain targets you've got to hit. So why do we think it's different if we're coaches or writers or or, or whatever? Like you, you've still got to do the work. So yes, yeah, some of it might be mediocre or not end up making the cut, but it sounds like you're treating it, well, really like a project to be managed. Therefore, I don't know, you start at eight, you finish at five, you put the hours in. Well, yeah, and and it 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 doesn't work against creativity. It's the opposite. It oh. actually puts in place a base of things that you don't have to exert your best creative endeavors on because they're set, and you can mm-hmm. save your best creative endeavors for the icing on the cake for the stuff that takes it up up a further level. When, when I was designing databases, nobody said to me, "Oh, Graham, have you got your special space where you design databases? Don't worry if you're late. That's okay. That's that's part of the creative process. It's like get it done on Friday because the money runs out then." Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, when I uh, when I started my my set my I did a contract for my first book and and my yeah. publisher said, "Look, I'll give you a second book contract." He said, "But a lot of people, uh, you know, um, that that pressure is too much for them." And I said, but what, what's the pressure? He said, well, you'll have money in, in your hand and, and a commitment to, to write a second book. And if I don't, well, you have to give us the money back. You're not going to get sued. I mean, I, yeah. I, I've been running a business for all these years. It was just that wasn't pressure. Yeah. No, I know that's no pressure, is it? If someone's giving you money and asking yeah. you to write the thing and you're agreeing yeah. to write it, fine, yeah. I'll write it. Yeah. And no if you don't you give it back, well, that seems fair enough to me. Yeah. I guess if you're an impecunious writer and you've spent the money, it's it's tough. You're a business writer, like you're you're writing as a business. Yeah, it doesn't feel like that. Okay, I really got to say this because I mean, there are people who will um, hear me talk like this, and they say, "Oh, so you're one of these guys who's who say I'm going to churn out one novel a year. You're just a machine. You've decided what the market wants. You're putting that in there, and you're just trying to make a buck." No, certainly my motivation is not to make money. Um, money's nice, but I, I'm, I'm financially where I, where I want to be, yeah. and and that's not what drives me. I mean, I'm driven by, I'm driven by the the desire to create something good and by the satisfaction of doing that that's what gets me up in the morning wow this is getting great this is this this book is coming out better than i imagined i was capable of writing and that's what multiple iterations can do for you wow yeah. i've got this in me i can do it um and the this the biggest satisfaction i get from writing which is sort of a different thing is after it's published when people come back to me and say that a book landed in their lives at the right moment to make some sort of difference it might just be hmm. made them laugh you know, when they were sick or something, opened their eyes to something, or yeah. they decided to get an autism assessment, discovered they were autistic and became an autism activist, which I, yeah, you know, extreme end, um, but, but, but real. Um, so money is, is sort of way back and all of the, and those things are all about just doing the best job I can. So bringing, bringing to bear uh, management techniques, science techniques, design techniques in particular, it's probably design theory is the thing I've brought most to the, most of the table. Is is to make that task easier for me. Um, I mean, one of the things particularly that I do is to break things up. So I do characters separately from doing plot, which I do separately from doing uh, final edits, those sorts of things. Rather than trying to sit down and do all those things at once, and what it means is I can focus all my creative energies on originality, on on doing as as great a job as I can um, on a particular one thing at a time one thing at a time topic. So, I mean, that's that's the type of thinking. And in no way, I mean, does it make me feel less of an artist? The opposite. Yeah, it's a bit like I've got a background many years ago now, but in 
professional acting. And it's a bit like once you really know a script, then you can allow the creative endeavor of the actual acting with the person or people or whoever to happen. But until you know the words, then then there's too much brain power going on trying to remember the words. So it's hard to have that creative flow. That, that's a lovely example. You've got this cognitive load. You, you want to get that cognitive load of memorizing the words out of the way. Yeah. So that's done. And now you build on that platform. And that's exactly right. I've said, okay, I know the structure. I know the story I'm going to want to tell. So when I sit down to write, I can focus on a beautiful sentence rather than thinking, what happens next? Yeah, I'm not yeah. loaded up with that. And there are people that are geniuses who can do that. I mean, Zadie Smith would say, Graham, that's not the way I work. I sit down and I'm a pantser. I write by the seat of my pants and it all comes. Yeah. And I just say, Zadie, if it works for you, you win the orange prize, yeah. you know, hats off. But I'm not that smart. And most yeah. writers are not. Yeah. They they wish they were or they think they are. So there's something you said that I would love to just dig into. You talked about one of the great satisfactions of your work is when you get some kind of feedback. Um, people say things, positive things, or people go and get an autism assessment and tell you. But of course, the, the higher the numbers of people that are enjoying your work, naturally, the higher numbers of people that maybe aren't enjoying your work. How do you deal with, uh, let's call it constructive criticism or, or negativity? How do you deal with that? Okay, um, look, I'm going to really be honest. Uh, okay, I was going to say, in general, it goes out to the punters. And if someone has a bad experience with one of my books and wants to throw it aside, well, that's part of life. We all have that. Yeah. And really, there are only a small percentage of books that really hit home. Yeah, you've, yeah. Got, you've got to kiss a lot of frogs. And if my, my yeah. book turns out to be a frog for someone, big deal. But, yeah. you know, if enough people are liking it, that's the, that's, that's the game. You can't please everybody. But, look, the truth is if anyone in the autism community – comes back to me and says this you know this wasn't authentic i didn't like the book i feel that there haven't been many yeah. but there's been two or three and you know i, w- I would say I, I really take i really take it to heart but equally the same logic applies there's an awful lot of people in that community who've been enormously supportive who regard it as being authentic and so forth that i say okay i, I lean back on that people are going people are going to disagree Look, the, the criticism that's far more difficult to deal with is when you're in the process of writing or publishing. So if a publisher rejects you, hmm. um, well, that's got pretty serious consequences. Um, if your editor says they don't like something or if your first readers who are in the role of edit, early editors hmm. say they've got a problem, um, you know, that's, that's pretty deep breath time because yeah, you've, you've put it in as your best effort. Hmm. Um, and look, this is, this is again, transferable skill stuff. Um, when I worked as a computer programmer on my first, you know, very early work, they talked about egoless programming. And you had to be able to submit your work to, to the criticism of peers and sometimes quite junior people and so forth, and you had to learn to suck it up. My, my wife, um, partner comes from a, uh, a medical background and, you know, they, they scrutinized and, and they have to be able to explain what they're doing and so forth. So, so look, that, that's, um, that's, that's been a huge help in just burying the ego and saying, okay, you know, what's being said here. And the other is when someone, I separate someone saying there's a problem from what their proposed solution is. Often they come packaged together. So an editor who should know better might well say, look, I think it would be better if we saw Angelina doing some vacuuming so we'd see that she was just a regular woman rather than some sort of high-flying lawyer type and so forth. 
Now, I'm not going to write the vacuuming scene, but what I am going to do is flag they think Angelina is not relatable enough. Yeah. So how am I going to solve that problem? So, so you know, and it might be that I, I meet it head on. I say, I, you know, I don't want you to relate to, you know, to this woman in that way that she's a different sort of woman, whatever it might be. But you know, I think it's um, Neil Gaiman says very, uh, very concisely, but I think we've all learned it ourselves or we've been writing for a while, that when an editor tells you there's something, you know, th- there's a, a problem, you know, when the editor tells you how to fix it, like when he tells you there's a problem, they're almost always right. When they yeah. tell you how to fix it, they're almost always wrong. And I think that separation says they haven't taken my book away from me. They've pointed out an issue. I don't know much about this, but isn't it fair to say that editors don't tend to be successful writers? It would be unusual for a successful writer to be moonlighting as an editor, wouldn't it? Yeah, look, I think some people do editing as a path to writing. I had one editor like that, and I think um, she wouldn't mind me saying that she found her her place as a writer, ultimately. Um, Yeah, the the, the long-stay, really professional editors, in my experience – they're not necessarily good writers. They'll, they'll write. They're not good even at yeah. sentence level. They'll often say, "Why don't you write this instead?" And you go, "Oh, oh I can see why you're an editor." But yeah. but the, but what they've done right is, is discover that you that what you wrote wasn't good, and they've pointed that out. And that's that's the job. And and if you understand the nature, and then you then look at it and say, "Well, what's going wrong here?" Fix it and uh, and get on with what you do best. Yeah, it reminds me of the analogy popping in my head. It's not perfect, but it's a. Uh... Mike Tyson and Cuss Amato, his his coach. Yep. Cuss was, you know, he had Mike and other highly successful boxers, but apparently Cuss, the old coach, was never more than a scrappy street fighter. Like he was never a great boxer. And yet he was doing whatever corrective to get these yep. young guys to a place where they were the best in the world. So maybe there's something in that as an editor. Like they don't have to be the best writer, in fact trying to come out with smart-ass writing suggestions isn't necessarily what you need from them, from what I'm hearing. No, no, and they and they almost, and they have, oh, I've got to tell you, editors, in my experience, sense of humour is thin on the ground. <laughs> so it's the biggest problem is that you've written something that you think it's funny, and they don't yeah. think it's funny. And then you have yeah. to think, is it is this actually unfunny just because they're an editor? And when you, when you get to my age, you're actually starting to worry about your sense of humour. You start to think, God, is this going to be a dad joke? Is this something that just won't play? And I think it's funny, just like dad thinks it's funny. Um, So so I I think the area that I'm probably most sensitive, and particularly because the the Rosie Project and books like that are comedic, is and comedic for a range of people of different ages, um, have I still got that or or am I straining at it? Have you got any tips on writing humorously? Like on creating humor in writing, it's it's a topic that has come up for me on numerous occasions. And I'll put my hand up and say I have attempted stand up three times over the years. Uh, once went pretty well. Once was middling. Third was a severe bomb, which is all part of the all part of the process. But what's your <clears throat> what are your thoughts, tips on writing humorously? <laughs> I think actually stand up. Even if it's yeah. the, I've never done a gig that had stand up written in front of it, but yeah. I've, I've managed to keep people laughing for half an hour while yeah. I was doing a book talk and so forth because that was my goal. Yeah, and, and I think stand up is a wonderful background for um, for writing humour because it doesn't. It's not particularly performative in the way that acting is performative. You know, it, I mean, timing and so on does come into it. You don't have the same sense of timing on the page, but what's important about it is you get feedback. 
and you would know from stand up that you will say something and it and it dies. You yeah. thought that was funny, and then you're going to have some throwaway line, maybe a response to something that came out of the audience, yeah. and they fall about laughing. You yeah. say, "What happened there?" <laughs> I'll do it again next time. You do it again next yeah. time. You discover it works and becomes one of your bits. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that having that that feedback from people and saying what works is is really is really important. You've got to listen to it. I think um, look, mo- most comedy, a, a lot of drama and writing works works around the reversal. It, it works where we confound people's expectations, and that happens in you know, dramatically. So you're looking for that. For that turnaround, it, it, it's harder, I think, to do it on the page. It's yeah. definitely harder to make people laugh out loud um, in yeah. writing. And what you tend to end up with in writing is wit rather than than real humour. Yeah. Um, and they're, they're sort of quite different things. Um, and, I, and I would say personally to, to keep some of that wit off the page, I think that um, you've got to be careful not to, I think, not to draw yourself attention to yourself as an author. I mean, there are authors, particularly in the chiclet space and, um, some some male authors too writing a certain style of of work often in nonfiction as well who are, are really keen to be clever on the page mm-hmm. and I think if you read some someone like Kathy Letts for example and this is not a criticism because because she does it so well and I would say if you can do it as well as Kathy Lett you'll have a market out there but that's very very <laughs> yeah. hard to sustain it's the one you're saying wow the writer is clever whereas the sort of writing that I tend to do makes me I hope invisible but it's trying to play it out in a very um, screenplay sort of way and say this this would be a scene that would work on television or in a movie yeah. and make people laugh and i'm trying to get them to see that in their head and, and laugh at that do you get to select oh, so your... let me have one more thing because yeah, yeah, um what and I, I left out the most important thing good yeah you know, comedy and writing can can come and usually does come from character yeah, you know, I say to people, I could write an episode of The Simpsons, and I could write a good episode of The Simpsons. And people say, "Well, that is pretty arrogant. That's one of the greatest, yeah. you know, successful, funny series of all time." Who the heck do you think you are? I say, "Yes, but I couldn't create The Simpsons." Yeah, the the, the idea that what they created, what Matt Groening created with The Simpsons, is is the scenario that you just know. If, if Homer and Bart and Marge and Mr. Burns walk into any situation. Yeah. Then the nature of who they are is going to just make the make the gags flow almost automated. Yeah, Homer's going to grab a donut and on the table, and we're going to laugh, and you know, the the whole the whole deal. Lisa's going to be pious about something. And Don Tillman was a gift. Don Tillman is my character in the Rosie Project. Wherever he went, comedy would would, would follow, and good hearted comedy, I think. So so that was my gift, and I can just keep on writing Rosie Projects. But ask me to do another one of those from scratch that is as funny. That's a big yeah. ask. Where did Don Tillman come from? Life. He said he was a gift. Yeah, look, Don, Don Tillman started off as a uh, inspired by a very good friend of mine and, and by his voice, and, and so was the original story, which changed right. completely. And Don changed a lot as well. But he's um, inspired by an amalgam of a, a number of people that I worked with over the years in, in science and the radio club, in yeah. information technology and academe, um, who were almost certainly autistic, but most of them, my generation, weren't diagnosed. and They were just geeks. Um, but I had a great affinity and love for these guys and my friends and they're the yeah. people I, I hung with them, my colleagues. So it meant that I was able to write. You write autism from a textbook. You write about people's deficits in a medical way. And it won't be, yeah. it won't be funny, and it won't. And if it is funny, it won't be kind. Um, whereas, you know, people say, you know, is it appropriate to draw um, humor from someone who has a disability? 
Um, and, you know, many in the autism community, we, most would probably regard it as, as a disability, certainly a social disability. Um, and, and I say, look, and they say, oh, I guess we don't laugh at him, we laugh with him. No, we laugh at Don um, yeah. lots of times at his behaviour. And I say, look, you've got to take the book as a whole. When you get to the end of the book, all I'm going to ask you is, is Don a good guy? Is he a good human being? Is he someone yeah. you'd like to hang out with and, and you, you, you respect? And if your answer is, oh, this is a good human being, this is someone we respect, then I've done my work. That, yeah. that, that means that whatever laughter we've had, we laugh at our friends, yeah. we laugh at good people, um, then then I've I've done what I what I set out to do. Yeah, listen, Graham, I completely agree. I've been teaching my daughter for years, and I think it's finally getting through to her. When people take the mickey out of you, assuming they're not threatening you or bullying you, but like when people are taking the mickey and teasing you, it's it's an opportunity to to fit in. Actually, it's an opportunity to build and bond. And so I love the idea that you would have, I don't know, an autistic character or, or whatever the thing. I mean, we've all got a thing, but yeah, yeah I, I think that's beautiful because for me, that's where a lot of human bonding comes from. And I would I would feel offended if I went out with some of my mates and they never ripped out of me that evening. I'd be thinking, what have I done? <laughs> where have I gone wrong? Yeah. Well, I'll I tell you, just, just so we can just segue, just for a moment on the teaching your kids, because I think that's just such a thing, that coaching your kids. Um, I you know, had minimal success, I think, you know, yeah. so sit down, kid, this is, this, is, this is the good oil, this is what you got to do, because you're here <laughs> at the time. But I enlisted my kid, I used to teach consulting skills. Yeah. So I used to teach the, the skills that you need to be a consultant, the, the soft yeah. skills, you know, which was sort of, you know, human being 101 at, at some level, yeah. you know, but including things like how to, how to deal with stress, um, you know, how to deal with the angry customer, all those mm-hmm. sorts of things. And it's like a one-day course. But my kids came along and were paid. I paid yeah. them to be my assistants, you know, hand out the yeah. forms, help with the group exercises, those, those types of things, starting when they were about 14 or so. Yeah. So they heard these courses over and over again. They used to help me at the university, right? Yeah. taught at the master's course and the same thing and would come along and help. And I never told them these things. I never gave it to them as advice, but they yeah. became experts in the same way yeah, and internalized it. So so the fact that they were on the teaching side rather than on the getting taught side gave yeah. them some power to, to adopt some of these things themselves. And but even now they're in their thirties now. They they say, ah yes, don't don't buy it back or whatever <laughs> the thing that they've been remember from the course. Ah, that's wonderful. Right. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna say we should wrap this up because A, I've really enjoyed it and B I try and keep my podcast kind of 30 to 40 minutes because, well, one thing, I'm not Joe Rogan, so I don't get away with a three-hour pod. And I also massively appreciate your time. And I think you've delivered a whole lot of, it's a cliched word, but you've delivered a lot of value. So I'd like to Well, we, sta- we, started, we started with marriage and we finished with bringing up kids. So anything in between has got to be a bonus. Yeah, 100%, man. Thank you. Yeah, really appreciate you being up for coming on and especially as it's early in the morning and hopefully your coffee well, well, you, you equally there's no business hours that overlap as far as we're concerned no it's tricky i've got a couple of clients in australia and flipping it mate yeah one in sydney one in melbourne and it's like yeah there's never a social hour between no. between our two nations <laughs> no. no well thank you thank you i hope you, you had dinner or you're still going to do that no no i've had dinner i cooked i've had dinner so no, I'll be uh, shutting up shop now and getting a relatively early night. I'm off to Leeds tomorrow. I'm a non-exec director for a company, just new roles starting, and I need to get down to Leeds for the day. So, so it'll be an early start. So where are you? Can I just ask, where are you actually living? What you've got in the background there is not telling, giving me many clues. Oh, no, it's just wallpaper at my lady's house. Yeah. Uh, I'm actually just outside Edinburgh, 
just now. So Scotland, I'm between um, outskirts of Edinburgh and the Shetland Islands. So we've got a family. Okay, but so you're on the, you're on the mainland. On the yeah, I'm on the mainland just now, but I was up until a couple of days ago. I was well, I've been in Spain, but before that, I was up in Shetland. We've got a 220 acres on a small island up in Shetland, which is yeah, pretty remote, but good good place Fantastic. to hang out. And that's where I was born. So I'm I'm kind of between two places. But okay, yeah. that was the picture I had of you on this remote island, and you know, I was expecting to see you know nothing in the background, just stretching off forever. No, sorry, my apologies. Over. Next time, and you'll be welcome anytime you uh, do make it across to the UK. We're, we're running some retreats on the island this summer. It's nice in the middle of summer. You get what we call the simmer dim, so it's light all night because it's pretty far north. So well, you've yeah, got you've got, the, you've got you've got my email. So drop me a, a details of the retreat, and probably not this year. We'll be on the road with the book, but yeah. um, we'll uh, yeah, we might well get over there. Nice one. Can fly you over. We've got an airstrip there, and we take light aircraft in and out so we could fly you in for the well, day it might be a lot of fun man well it would be a lot of fun well but to retreat you know we might need a week of writing but that that brilliant okay good man thanks okay again. good luck when will the podcast come out uh in the next seven days i'll let you know i'll ping you a link or oh, I'll fantastic. Get, uh yeah i'll get that like ping you a link nice one thanks graham cheers thanks thanks for having me cheers, cheers. buddy bye I would massively appreciate if you enjoy this podcast that you would leave a review or just hit five stars, ideally, or one star, if that's how you feel about it. I do appreciate honest feedback. Thank you so much.